You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, leave us not to ourselves, but send your spirit to speak to us through your word that we might understand and live as you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any volunteers that would like to preach 1 Corinthians 11 uh, this morning? Uh, This has been a real tough nut to crack uh, over the past uh, two weeks. But I will say that when we get to really complicated parts of the Bible and we think, I can't make sense of that, the problem is not with the Bible, the problem is is with us. Uh, It's our own mind that has a hard time comprehending what God is going to say. Excuse me, nonetheless, this is one of those passages, excuse me, where we all need a little bit or a lot of help. So I want to talk about the three different contexts in which this passage rests, and then I want to ask two questions that Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians 11. The first is the actual uh, context of this passage in uh, chapter 11. Now, leading up to this, uh, Paul has been talking about knowing nothing amongst the Corinthians except Christ and him crucified. He talks about the freedom of a Christian. He talks about being all things to all men in order that some might be saved and wraps up chapter 10 in this way at the 31st verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is saying, in my ministry, I want to so clearly set forth the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God came to the earth as a man, lived a sinless life, was crucified on the cross for our sins in our stead, that the full judgment of God was poured out upon him instead of us, but that on the third day he was raised again from the dead and lived and now reigns on high from his throne. I want to be absolutely clear about that. And anything that gets in the way of that needs to be peeled back. Anything that obscures the gospel needs to be peeled back. Anything that causes confusion or offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God needs to be peeled back. And so he begins chapter 11 with that in mind. Because the second part of this context that we need to be aware of is that is the context of public worship. For the next four chapters, Paul is going to be talking about what Sunday gatherings of God's people ought to look like. And he begins here. Now some of you may read it and say, what in the world does this have to do with Sunday? I mean, Andrew, I mean, tell me what this means. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. What? But he is talking about Sunday gatherings and things have crept into the worship of God in the Corinthian church that are obscuring the gospel and confusing the people and causing offense amongst Jews and Greeks and the church of God. And then finally we need to consider the context of Corinth. 
We're talking about an ancient Mediterranean place. And these three keys are going to allow us to unlock this passage to better understand what God is saying to us. And so with those in mind, let's ask the questions. First, Paul is asking, are you abusing your freedom in such a way that it obscures the gospel? He's been talking about the freedom that we have as Christians. And I think here we can actually ask the question, does a woman in the life of God's church, when participating in the Sunday gathering, have the right to have her head uncovered? Is she at liberty to do that? I'm just looking in here who's toast and who's not. Well, I think the Bible would say yes. A woman does have that right. So why does Paul say no? Because of the cultural context in which they live. In the first instance, a woman having her head covered indicated that she was married. And so by having your head, a married woman having her head uncovered, it's going to cause confusion not only in the congregation, but also in the community. I mean, what would you think if I just... I had my wedding band on one day, and then the next day I had it off, and you're kind of looking at my left hand, and you would be right to wonder, everything all right with you and Lauren? What's going on with that? And in the same way, if a woman was to remove her head covering, it gave the impression not only that she was unmarried, but even in Corinth, if she had her hair down flowing around her back for all to see, it may actually indicate that she's a prostitute. And so when a woman was getting up in the life of the Corinthian church and prophesying and praying, it was hard for anybody to hear what she was saying because they were so distracted by her hair. Now, of course, we don't struggle with that in our congregation. In fact, quite the opposite. If some women started covering their heads with a veil as they did back in the day, that actually might be distracting, wouldn't it? You would wonder, what's all that about? But I wonder what it would look like in our own context. Because one of the things that we need to understand is that our goal as, the, as, as a church is to move the gospel in a culturally appropriate manner so that others might know who Jesus Christ is and turn to him and live. A culturally appropriate vehicle to move the gospel. And so an equivalent might be if I were to stand before you in a t-shirt and shorts this morning. Now, nobody wants to look at any man's legs. That's the first thing I would say. Uh, but next to that, it would be so distracting to you that it would be hard for you to hear anything that I had to say. Indeed, hard for you to hear anything that God had to say. I mean, this is one of the benefits of wearing this. You have absolutely no idea what I'm wearing underneath of this. And I can wear this, and it's meant to blend in. It's meant to obscure me in order that you might hear. That's why we wear these things. And yet, there might actually be another context in which me wearing a t-shirt and shorts is perfectly appropriate. And there are wonderful, believing, faithful congregations in California where it is typical for the pastor to get up in Bermuda shorts and a t-shirt and proclaim the gospel. And the congregation thinks nothing of it. In fact, if I were to get up in that same congregation and put this on, they would say, what in the world is that man wearing? 
And so in the same way in the church in Corinth, women not covering their heads was causing the gospel to be obscured. No one could hear what God was saying. And so it's right to ask the question, are we importing or abusing our freedom in such a way that we're importing practices that obscure the gospel? Are we doing things that are so upsetting, not just to us as a congregation, but to those outside of the church, that we can't hear the gospel? Now the thing about it is, is that Paul doesn't say that you're not going to offend people. Paul makes it very clear that the gospel is an offense. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's folly to the Gentiles. And so if anybody is going to be offended in Paul's ministry, let them be offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But look, don't let them be offended by your manner of living so that the gospel is drowned out by the noise of your life. The second question that Paul would ask us is, are you importing cultural norms that are, dis that are obscuring the gospel? Or as he would say here, pagan practices. And this is where he turns on the men and says, men, you shouldn't have your heads covered. Now as a footnote, when it comes, Paul is being very clear here about gender, that it's being a part of the created order, and that men and women are different. And he's also saying that women should be a part of Sunday gatherings. But I'm going to leave that, that to the side because we're going to talk about it when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. So just keep that in mind. So when you want to, you say, well, but what about all this stuff about woman, you know, man being the head of woman and, and all of that stuff? We're going to get to it in, in chapter 14. So just bear with me this morning. Because when he turns to the men and says, you should keep your head uncovered, what is he talking about? Paul is talking about the pagan practice where a Greek or Roman man would come into a pagan temple and he would take his toga and cover his head, symbolizing the man's unworthiness and the God's otherness, his or her holiness, his or her power, saying, I am small and you are so big and I have to have something between the two of us. A covering. And Paul says, that's a pagan practice. And men were coming into the church in Corinth and covering their heads in the same way that the pagans were. And Paul says, amongst men, other than the context of pagan worship, the only other men who would cover their heads were servants and slaves. And when you do that, it sends the wrong message in the first place that it's a pagan practice, but in the second place of our relationship to God as redeemed people. Because yes, in some sense we are servants and even slaves of God. But Jesus says to his disciples, I now call you friends. You're now able to stand before the throne of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. You plead the, me the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ. And so you can stand with boldness. You're now made a child of God. That's your status. There's no need for a covering. You have been reconciled to God. But the thing about it is, is these men would cover their heads. And when they did that, 
it made them look incredibly pious. It made people think, oh, he must be a holy man with his head covered like that. He must really understand himself and understand who God is. And Paul would say no. Some of you have heard me speak about my Aunt Molly, my great-grandfather's uh, uh, my great-grandfather's aunt, actually. She was born in three, she, was, she lived in three different centuries. Born in 1899, died in 2001. And she was the only one of the group from Scotland that was a believer. And growing up, she used to have this phrase that she would use to talk about certain Christians. She would say, oh, that person is far bent with God. That person is far bent. And what she meant by that is that is somebody who walks with God, who knows Him, and God knows them so thoroughly that their lives are so caught up in Him that they can't be thought of apart from God. They've been far with Him. They are far bent. But she also said that there were people who were thought of as far bent but actually were not. That they had certain practices in their lives that made people think, oh, that man, that woman, they're far bent with God. When in fact they were not. Outwardly they seemed pious, they did things. But those practices were empty because they were divorced from the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for his people and how we now relate to God because of Jesus. And these practices, Paul said, are wrong, whether they're new or old. You know, Rusty Reno, uh, the editor of First Things, recently said about Anglicanism when asked to define it. He says, well, Anglicanism is just liking things that are really old. Now, I would challenge that definition uh, heartily. But he has a point that there is a sense that some of us begin to cater to that just because it's old makes it a good and right tradition. If you want to validate any practice, simply call it ancient, and then it's good. But the tradition that Paul talks about here, when he talks about maintaining the traditions even as I deliver them to you, are traditions of the church, but they're not meant to be held up as some sort of equivalent with what the Bible has to say. Paul is saying that every tradition must be checked against what the Bible has to say, which is why I don't think that his word about head coverings would be equivalent today or speak to us today. Now, in the life of our own congregation, or even of Anglicanism, Anglicanism, really, I'm not speaking to anything specific. I don't have a bee in my bonnet. But I do want us to stop and think, why? Why do we have the traditions that we have? Where did they come from? Does it obscure the gospel, or does it bring the gospel into focus? Does it provide clarity? Back in the 1970s at St. Helena's Church in Beaufort, South Carolina, there was a young associate, and the Sunday after he was ordained a priest, he celebrated at the table for the first time. And on his way to the communion rail, there's a brass railing. And on the way down, he took his wedding ring and he dinged the rail loudly. 
And then the next time he celebrated communion, he did the same thing, and Frank Fagan, the rector, came up to him and said, why in the world are you dinging your ring? And he said, because you do it. <laughs> and Frank had to think, and Frank smiled and said, what, why do you think I do it? And he said, well, I think you do it because it's a nice ringing noise and it calls people to the communion rail. And it alerts people that it's time to come forward and, and receive the bread and the wine and to put their faith in Jesus. And Frank smiled and said, I wear special orthopedic shoes that build up a static charge. And so I ding my ring to discharge the, the shock so I don't zap anybody at the rail. Well, it sounded like a lovely tradition, didn't it? Ringing the bell. But the associate didn't take time to really think about what the tradition was all about. And in the same way, our traditions are lovely and marvelous and good. And the Advent is a testimony of how those things can communicate the gospel clearly. And so it, it warms my heart when people walk out on a Sunday and say, what a beautiful and glorious service. But I rejoice to the point of weeping when someone comes out and says, what a beautiful and glorious Savior. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II, said very wisely that the church is the only organization that exists for those who are not members. And that's what Paul's getting at this morning. He's asking, are you abusing your freedom in such a way that the gospel is obscured? Is there an area of your life which you may actually have the freedom to do what you're doing, but is putting a stumbling block in the way of the weaker brother, as Paul would say, or the weaker sister? And also, are you importing cultural norms, even possibly pagan practices, or at least non-Christian, that are obscuring the gospel as well and not making Jesus and his redeeming love plain. Paul would say to the Corinthians in their own lives and in their Sunday services, what is of the greatest value to you? Your freedom? Your preferences? Or the setting forth of the person and work of Jesus Christ and the worship of, of him by the nations. Because, dear brothers and sisters, that is why we exist. That is why God has called us to himself. And woe be unto us if we do not preach the gospel. Let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have the ability to cut through all of the fog and the smoke and the obstacles and get to us. And Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to those things in our own lives that might block the way to someone hearing the gospel and coming to know you, to love you, and to serve you. And Lord, that we would have our lives marked by sacrifice, whether we're a man or a woman, and that our lives would much better and faithfully reflect who you are and what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.